The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, a very warm welcome to Scorebox. Look, everybody, whatever your worries out there, why don't you just spend three hours and let Karen and I take all those off your shoulders? Because there's a lot going on, especially in the market. So let's get some headlines. Wall Street snapping a four-day losing streak despite the US 10-year yield cracking a fresh 2007 high. Now, the Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby tells CNBC the central bank is on the right track. We've got to get the inflation back down to target. But I think we're doing it. And, and so far, we've been on a path which is quite unusual historically, where we've been getting the inflation rate down without driving up the unemployment rate. Uh, Moody's warns another U.S. government shutdown could harm its AAA sovereign rating. As talks over federal funding drag on, the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has this warning for his GOP holdouts. They have to keep the government open. I mean, if people want to close the government, it only makes it weaker. Why would they want to stop paying the troops or stop paying the border agents for the Coast Guard? I don't understand how that makes you stronger. Evergrande extends losses for a second session after one of the Chinese developers' units flags a missed onshore bond interest payment, raising fresh concerns over the sector. The EU and China try to defuse trade tensions, even as the bloc's trade commissioner, Valdis Dombrovskis, voices a stark warning the two countries may be drifting apart. We have requested that our uh, Chinese partners engage with us on these uh, challenges. Uh, specifically, we wish to see greater transparency, predictability and reciprocity. And how about this? There is no turning back. The Nissan CEO, Makoto Uchida, pledges to only sell electric vehicles in Europe by 2030. Whilst telling CNBC he's confident in the automaker's strategy in one of the world's biggest markets. We have a 20 years of the history in China, and we have already sold 50 million units of the Nissan car. We do have a great asset. No shortage of concerns out there for the market. The oil price rallying, what we've seen on the yields, the 10-year yield also escalating, the market concern about a government shutdown, and of course uh, the overarching fear of higher for longer and what that monetary policy backdrop means for investors. But at least yesterday uh, we saw the market shrug off some of those concerns and push into the green, so snapping a four-day losing streak. The major boards are showing just very slim ranges though still. The Dow up about a tenth of a percent, four tenths uh, thereabouts and plus for the Nasdaq. So it was a firmer session that unfolded. One of the big moving stocks to the upside was Amazon on the S&P 500. Don't forget last week, a big sell-off in consumer discretionary names led by Amazon on fears that finally those credit costs and the higher oil price were catching up with some of those big um, spending patterns we've seen on the high street. So it was a bounce back for Amazon in session. In terms of treasuries, let's just take a quick close-up look at those numbers. The 10-year yield hit the highest level and that was a really rough around that five and a half plus percent mark that we've now seen highest level since October 2007. That's right, before the financial crisis, a long time back, as we take a look at uh, just exploring historical levels on this board. In terms of what happens next, some of those in the rates market are looking at 
477 being the next stop. If it holds there, then potentially you could see a pivot. If it doesn't, could keep on going. And some are saying uh, above 5.1% even the next couple of weeks could be a possibility. So it's something watching closely. Of course, we've seen elevation at the short end of the curve over the course of last week as well. In fact, both trades bounced together and we escalated to 5.14 uh, in trade yesterday. And don't forget the market had about eight basis points to the upside last week. So there is, again, movement on these Treasury yields. A close-up look at that 10-year Treasury yield and you can see what those levels look like. Uh, here's the curve and uh, that 4.54, you can see it's not a level we've seen for a number of years on this board. To the dollar, the uh, elevation is there. Given the yield story, it's been a real prop under dollar trade at this point in the dollar index, the highest level since November 2022. Sterling on the back foot this morning, 122 the handle and uh, the slippage you've seen on Euro, even though you've got a green patch this morning, it's back below the 106 handle, so it's dropped versus the greenback. Dollar yen, this is an interesting trade, isn't it? Dollar still somewhat cautious versus the Japanese yen. It is the one central bank that hasn't done anything at this point, but the markets are suitably cautious that it could do something which could prove disruptive for markets. Nobody wanted to get caught out on this trade. And you can see, as a result, it's one where you're not seeing a lot of territory claimed at this point. Dollar yuan is a little bit weaker in the morning session. To the Asian markets, and uh, let's just take a look at what we're seeing in Japanese stocks. The yield story is in play. Some of the big Tokyo markets are, are seeing a real reach for dividend stocks. But broadly speaking, we are weaker, down nine-tenths of a percent, one-odd percent down for Hong Hong Kong, again, the property developer story is not disappearing. Evergrande, as we talk about meeting debt repayments and coupons, and that's uh, flared up again as an issue for investors across the region. Four tens down for the ASX in Australia, Steve. Super duper work, Karen. Thank you. Right, but let's get into the weeds on the, uh, on the Fed once again, because the Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari says he expects rates will still likely need to rise further this year. Kashkari pointed to surprising resilience of the U.S. economy and said borrowing costs, quote, probably have to go a little bit higher and then be held higher for longer. That is not what the market ever wants to hear, is it? Uh, meanwhile, the Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby says inflation above 2% remains a greater risk than tighter monetary policy. Speaking to CNBC, Goolsby said it was still a priority for the central bank to help prices cool off. We've got to get the inflation back down to target. But I think we're doing it. And, and so far, we've been on a path, which is quite unusual historically, where we've been getting the inflation rate down without driving up the unemployment rate. I've been trying to emphasize that pretty soon in here, the, the question is going to stop being, well, how much more are they going to raise? And it's going to transform into how long do we need to hold rates at this kind of restricted level to feel convinced that we're back on this path to 2%. And that's healthy. Moody's has warned that a US government shutdown could harm the country's credit and potentially lead to a downgrade. The ratings agency, the last of the big three to have a AAA rating on the United States, did not formally signal a downgrade, but said a shutdown would, quote, demonstrate the significant constraints that intensifying political polarization continue to put on fiscal policymaking. The move comes just a month after Fitch downgraded the U.S. government's top credit rating amid a standoff over the debt ceiling. This is U.S. lawmakers rushed to clinch a deal over a spending plan for the next fiscal year ahead of a deadline on the 1st of um, October. Can I just say something really that might be very dumb? And I don't mean to be rude to my friends at Moody's, but who cares? What difference does a downgrade? The U.S. prints its own money. It's got the biggest pool of buyers who are going to be still buying U.S. 
um, treasuries, yeah. whether it's AAA. I, I, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say really naughty, and Will knows where I'm going on this. This is the director. Octavio Morenzi is with us, CEO of Opimas. You're here to talk about... Morning. Good morning. Uh, and, and by the way, Octavio got the, got the memo. Look, blue shirt, African animals, red tie, and a grey suit. I mean, we're like twins this morning. Fantastic. You, last thing you want is look at a twin with me. I can show you. Look, you're here to talk about banks. And I just... I, you're, you're an expert on this. Does it matter if the US is downgraded one notch or not? Well, I suppose you're absolutely right. The US gets to print its own money and, and, and therefore it will always repay. It, it, it can't really default as a result of that. But that's a question of a nominal default. Of course, they can print lots of money and reduce the value of the dollar quite significantly. So there is a risk there. Well, there hang on, they printed loads of money and not got, rid of, got the dollar down significantly. So how much more money have they got to print? How much more of a huge deficit have they got to run? in order to get the dollar down because we're trading at where are we on the dollar index here we are we're at the highest level since november last year they're printing a, a shed load of money if i can put it that way and still not getting the dollar down absolutely but that, that the question is where does that carry on going just the last three months the u.s has racked up a trillion dollars in debt i mean things are accelerating it's three seemed. months a trillion dollars just 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 so our viewers know that kind of level it's amazing isn't it it's they're not the only ones are they they're not the only ones but it's extraordinary so if that carries on for a while yes i think moody's does have a point but you're absolutely right of course the u.s won't default on a nominal basis they'll repay you with something with pieces of paper that might be worth a lot less, and so I think that's the risk. But it's dominoes, isn't it? So if you have a downgrade for the sovereign, then sometimes you can see a downgrade for the banks as a result, based on the scenario, right? We've seen that time and yes. time again in other countries. We've seen it time and time again, and we've also seen time and time again these rating agencies, when they do downgrade governments, that the governments don't react very nicely and start to put lots of pressure on them and give them nasty phone calls and the regulators start knocking on their doors. And so um, I think Moody's might see that this was a bit of a mistake to do and not really put them in the, in the good graces of the US government. Talking about good graces, I better get back in the good graces of my gallery, who just said, what did he just do? We were supposed to do some more reads. So I'll get do that and then we'll come back to you in a moment. Because the ECB president, Christine Lagarde, has reiterated that interest rates must stay restrictive for longer, even as the Eurozone economy recovers. Addressing lawmakers in the European Parliament, Lagarde said policymakers were locked in a, quote, long race to bring inflation down to the central bank's 2% target. Meanwhile, Italian banks posted a mixed closed Monday as speculation grew over whether larger lenders could actually take up a government loophole out of paying a one-off tax. New documents seen by Reuters show Maloney's government could give banks the option to boost their non-distributable reserves by an equivalent amount uh, to 2.5 times the tax, blunting sentiment which had seen the lenders climb as much as 3% earlier in the session. Right, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Octavio Morenzi, who's the CEO of Opimas. This is where I was supposed to have brought you in. Um, so look, let's start. I mean, there's so many questions. Um, let's start off on the European banks as well. And actually, no, let's start off on the Italian banking story as well. When I spoke to Tajani, I've got to be honest, I spoke to him at the start of September and he was like, yeah, the truth is she, didn't, she did this one on her own pretty much as well. Um, should we worry about, once again, disruption at the top of Italian politics and the ramifications for their banks? Well, it sort of seems par for the course for the Italian government <laughs> does, to have these it? kinds of jerking back But she's back shown and a forth. remarkable vein of, com uh, of competence since she became elected. Yes, I mean, she, she did a very interesting thing, of course, there. She introduced this tax, this windfall tax on, on interest rates, returns that Italian banks have achieved. I mean, let's be frank about it. Italian banks have not really done spectacularly well over the course of the past few years. And now to hit them with an additional tax, finally, when they start to make a bit of money, mm -hmm. seems so grotesquely unfair. But then she sort of 
went back and forth on it and cut it and, and made some sort of complicated formula to basically reduce it. And now it looks like they're getting rid of it altogether. Yeah. So it, it's gone. But I'm not sure what all these things mean. What 2.5% of something or 40% of something else and, and then the square root of it seems to be <laughs> the number that they're coming uh, and up with. And you're the banking analyst, just to confirm. Listen, I'm, I'm just confused. I don't know what it means. I think it is basically means it's going away and it's going to disappear. Uh, maybe not as quickly as they'd hoped, but they might change it three times before Sunday again. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. And this is mind, it was meant to be a short-term measure anyway. That sort of tweaking you'd expect of a long-term policy that was sticking around, right? Absolutely, absolutely. But you know, these short-term measures do have a tendency to become long-term policy inadvertently and uh, end up sticking around for decades sometimes afterwards, after they're supposed to go away quite quickly. You know, it's funny, you're here to talk about bank execution and who's doing well strategically, and you mentioned the performance of the Italian banks. The one that has jumped out in recent times actually has been Unicredit under Andrea Orsel. It feels as though there's been a very strong strategy in place. It's had a balance, of course, there's better credit conditions for the banks in terms of stretch out those NIMS. But Andre Orsel has been very much a driving force of the bank. And then to have this bank tax come on top, it does feel as though it's almost personal in a way. Absolutely. It's adding insult to injury and there was absolutely no reason to do it. I mean, I think the Italian government can raise taxes more generally perhaps, but to single out the banking sector and single out one part of their uh, income statement seems a really weird thing to do, rather than have a sort of a more general tax. So I think it's going away, it's going to disappear. Um, but you're absolutely right, Unicredit has done quite impressively well over the course of the past few years. Tell me, what went wrong with the um, Slavomir Krupa's um, new strategy announcement. I, we looked at it and we, we were a little bit underwhelmed at some of the, the return on equity, return on tangible equity targets on this show. And then suddenly, within an hour, the stock was having a, a, a serious wobble as well. What's, what went wrong? Well, I suppose, first of all, the French banking sector, unlike most other banks, have seen their net interest margins more compressed. And that's in part because interest rates on savings accounts are regulated in France. And so the French government comes and says, you shall pay 6% to... Your, your savings account holders for this particular kind of saving product, and that compresses it. So French depositors are more clued into demanding higher returns for their money. They're not willing to sit and get 0% on a checking account. They want to get 3 4 5%. And so that has compressed interest rate margins at all French banks, but Sokgen in particular. So that happened there. But, but Krupa, I think his problem was that he was basically saying, OK, I'm going to turn things around. I'm coming up with a plan. I'm it's going to be really slow. <laughs> I mean, and, and he came up with this big strategy, or at least said they're coming up with a big strategy. And then last week on the 18th, they announced the strategy and said, here, here it is, and here's the document to explain it. And if you really looked through it, there were a lot of sort of platitudes about we're going to pursue operational efficiency and we're going to get our costs down and our revenues up and all those so things. Same as everyone else, basically. Same as everyone else, but really no plan how to get there. No, no, but then he says, and we're going to be big on ESG and we're going to cut our lending into the oil and gas sector and that whole sort of strategy seemed to be a bit tone deaf. I don't know if he's read the newspapers the past 18 months, but it seems that sort of ESG strategies of big banks have fallen a bit out of favour. It's not really going to endear yourself to the market. And that's what we saw. Basically, very short on specifics, very long on sort of platitudes. And the core point of it was big on ESG. Yeah, and that I, just fell flat. And I guess a lot of us out there who believe in ESG would say, actually, I admire him for sticking to his guns. But you're absolutely right. The runes at the moment are certainly turned against uh, being aggressive towards those hydrocarbon investments. Well, I want to ask you a question about the first part of your answer there, and that's about NIMS more generally as well. 
You and I and Karen have spoken about this, it's probably at the start of every banking cycle for years, as well. and that NIMS versus the ramifications of higher interest rates. Everyone always gets excited at the top of this, and I, I just yawn with them because they're like, oh, NIMS, we're all, the banks are off to the races, and actually there are so many other things that can go wrong whilst NIMS are going uh, widening because of why interest rates are going up from the central banks as well. That Everyone seems to forget that at the start of every cycle. Um, do you just want to just give us a kind of report card on, firstly, the European banks and how they're getting on more generally with, OK, expanded NIMS to a certain degree, as you pointed out with the French there, tick. But there are a lot of other things going on that means it's not quite the great environment for the banks. Well, I think in the banking sector, in, in Europe and in the US, there's a bit of apprehension and foreboding about where we're going. And the real problem is that, yes, in this cycle of interest rate hikes, we've seen net interest margins expand and become much, much bigger. Basically, depositors have not demanded higher returns on their deposits. At least retail depositors are basically sitting and getting nothing for their money and seem to be quite happy to do it. Well, it's, it's great for the banks. I mean, they could put their money to work someplace else. They'd certainly have choices. You can put it in a bond fund or buy bonds or, or, or go someplace else. There's all sorts of things that those depositors could do. But they're choosing to leave their money basically in almost 0% return or very, very limited returns. And that's been great in terms of net interest margin because lending rates have gone up, of course, quite significantly. Now, what happens next? Well, eventually that's going to catch up, right? Eventually the depositors are going to say, I'd like more return on my money and and I can see other people getting that so I want five six percent on my savings account I or, don't want or, to get or at least well, I think we've got a great board and we haven't got it now but it, it shows that the US deposit rates or uh, have gone up from on, on standard accounts have gone up from 0.05 or something to 0.46 percent you get for putting money of the US bank and yet the US banks have expanded their lending side to an average of five and a half six as well I mean it's a stunning stat. Yeah, it's European ESCO. Speaking of the US banks we've something we've spoken about for a long time has been cost cutting and I was just looking at City and the moves by Jane Fraser to strip out the bureaucracy and overhaul the business and just effectively saying look there are too many costs here you've got to arms of the business where you need approval and there's a number of other managers overlooking the same story and you need about three people approving any major decision. What do you make of the overhaul? Does City look like a different proposition down the track? Well, I, I think so far, yes, she, she's, she's talked about basically stripping out layers of management. That's probably always a good thing to do. But I think in any large banking organization, you always sort of live in a matrixed organization. And by that, I mean, you always have sort of a product focus on the one hand and then a geographic focus on the other. Within Citibank, sort of the geographic focus has become the dominant one and not the product focus. So I might be in retail banking, but I basically work for the head of the US. That's, that's where I, I sit. And so she's talking about getting rid of sort of the geographic focus, except for in the US, and basically saying we should be more focused on the products and that we can get rid of that layer of management. I think that's, that's good if you, can, if you can pull it off, but it's very hard to do. You always need some geographic focus. There are differences, particularly in retail and consumer businesses. There are very large differences from one country to another. So you need to be adaptive to those, those local requirements. And that means some sort of local management. You can't control everything centrally from New York. When it comes to uh, the US banks, a key part of this is what's happening with uh, IPOs, investment banking more broadly, and it's been a very slow environment. Window of hope around the arm listing and a couple of others, Instacart as well. What do you make of the prospect of any of this business coming back for the banks this year? Well, look, I mean, so far year to date, they're way, way down. Last year, they were way down as well. It's been a very moribund business. And I think a lot of investment banks have held on in the expectation on the hopes that things would return. And, and come back and bounce back. And so we've had a lot of investment bankers basically twiddling their thumbs, doing not very much work. 
uh, with very little to do. Uh, I feel what's going to happen now is we're going to go into some very serious cost-cutting, culling there, and, and these mark, what we see now, I'm going to say it's a flash in the pan, but it doesn't seem to be very sustainable. I think if you look at the pipeline for IPOs coming up, it's not that enormous, and it's not really going to sustain this. The mergers and acquisitions business also is, is a bit lacklustre at the moment, and that might come a bit back more, but uh, it's not enough to justify these very large staff. So I think cost-cutting and headcount-cutting in investment banking is going to be the order of the day in the coming months and quarters. Um, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much indeed for getting involved in all our chats as well. And, and I guess the, the real question for viewers is, is what thematic are we going to wear on our tyres next time you come Well, listen, to? next time I'll send you an email and we can well, call we need to, even I mean, better, even more closely. put on the right kind of top as well to match us with. <laughs> uh, uh, and again, I don't know if the viewers can see, but I'm wearing zebras and, and Octavio is wearing giraffes. You can't get more coordinated than that. Different terrain, different colour, perhaps. Oh, I think they, they share yeah. mixed terrain. Oh, well, next time. Yeah, next time. Yeah. Some sort of tropical. Whales or something. Or sharks. Not something tropical. Fish. I like fish. I can do fish. <laughs> Let's do fish. that. Let's okay. do that. Nice I'll, to see you, green or blue. Octavia, thank you very much for joining us today. Coming up on the show, Evergrande's difficult week continues as one of its units misses an onshore bond payment. Nissan says it will stick to its European EV timeline days after UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak delays the country's transition deadline. We'll bring you Arjun's exclusive interview with the CEO, Makoto Uchida. And we'll hear from Smith the Group's CEO. There's Paul Keel as the FTSE-listed industrial posts its four-year earnings. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Evergrande's crisis deepened after a unit of the company defaulted on a 4 billion yuan bond payment. The domestic unit, Hangda Real Estate Group, says it is actively negotiating with bondholders in order to reach a solution as soon as possible. The latest setback comes as an ex-CEO and a former CFO were reportedly detained by authorities, according to Chinese media group Kaixin. EU leaders have expressed concern about the bloc's growing trade deficit with China, which hit 396 billion euros last year. Those comments were echoed by the European Trade Commissioner, Valdis Dombrovskis, who met with the Chinese Vice Premier, He Lefeng, in Beijing on Monday as part of a four-day trip to China. Evelyn joins us with more from Beijing. Evelyn, we had a big debate about this yesterday from the European side, but I was making the point, I don't see how the two find any agreement here when the Europeans want to de-risk, they want to take down some of the vulnerabilities that they see in supply chains that are too reliant on the Chinese. Right. I mean, certainly top of mind for the meetings these couple days in China are the EU's new probes into Chinese electric vehicle subsidies. The Trade Commissioner said at a press conference this morning that these subsidies, these probes, came up in almost every single meeting that he had with the Chinese. And he wanted to clarify that this probe is into the subsidies on the side of production for Chinese electric cars. He said you know, the EU also has subsidies to consumer purchases of electric vehicles in the European Union. So 
there's different segments of the supply chain that they're looking at here. And of course, he said that these investigations are going to be in line with EU and WTO rules. They also need a lot of engagement with the Chinese side. And of course, that's something that also came out of this meeting. You know, they're setting up a working group to, to discuss financial regulation. And while some of the rhetoric that we've heard in the last couple days might have been rather strong and surprising to many, today, the commissioner is saying that there's no change in rhetoric. In fact, it's a change in the facts. And one of these is that trade that you just mentioned and also some of the sentiment. Let's have a listen to what else he said. In a recent survey by the EU Chamber of Commerce in China, nearly two thirds of respondents indicated that doing business has become more uh, difficult. Um, the uh, business environment has become more political and less uh, predictable. Uh, we have requested that our uh, Chinese partners engage with us on these uh, challenges. Uh, specifically, we wish to see greater transparency, predictability and reciprocity. What's important to remember is the backdrop to all of the EU-China economic discussions is the war in Ukraine. And the commissioner is emphasizing EU's position on this issue. China obviously has taken a slightly different stance. Here's what he had to say. And China's position is uh, affecting the country's image, not only with European uh, consumers, but also with businesses. Uh, over a third of EU companies in this country have indicated that uh, China's position on the war is making it a less attractive investment destination. Uh, China's response and its uh, contribution to resolve, uh, resolving the war is a way uh, that uh, uh, is uh, important for us to uh, in, in engage. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.